I invite you to turn to Judges chapter 13. As we come now to the first of four chapters covering the life of Samson. But before we hear God's word, let us call upon him in prayer once again. Father, with David, we ask that you would teach us your way, that we would walk in your truth, that you would unite our easily distracted and divided hearts to fear your name. For your steadfast love is great towards us, and you have delivered our souls from the depths of Sheol. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord to you this evening from Judges chapter 13. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah. And the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But, no, but Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life and what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat any unclean thing. All that I commanded her, let her observe. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, If you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. 
And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name, so that when your words come true, we may honor you? And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanedan between Zorah and Eshtaol. This is the word of the Lord. In the ancient world, it was said that all roads lead to Rome. And that was literally quite true during the height of the Roman Empire. Well, when you're reading your Bibles, you can quite figuratively say that all roads lead to Jesus. Jesus said that everything written before him was ultimately written about him. So even in the book of Judges, we have followed various roads to Jesus, although some of those roads have probably appeared more like rural back roads than clear paved streets. But that changes, I think, with the story of Samson which is like an open highway with many clear signs pointing you directly to Jesus. If you know the story of Jesus, you see it everywhere in the life of Samson. Even those who have virtually nothing positive to say about Samson cannot help but see the foreshadowing of Jesus. So while there have been many shadows in judges of our salvation that we have learned from, Samson's story is the brightest of these shadows. Samson is clearly a type of Christ, of the one who is to come and save us. His life points to certain aspects of Jesus' life and the gospel. I also believe in Samson, we see a forerunner of John the Baptist. When you know John the Baptist's life and Samson's, again, you see many parallels. And so as we work over the next several weeks through these four chapters on Samson, I will try to show you both Jesus and John. But Samson also embodied the people of Israel at the time meaning he not only reveals to us the Savior that sinful man needs, he reveals to us the need of sinful man for a Savior. For remember, Israel was called to be God's special 
people out of all the nations, Israel was set apart for God to be holy and his treasured possession. God even says of Israel, Israel is my firstborn son. So they were to be a holy people set apart and consecrated to God. They were to obey and serve him as his son. And clearly, as we've been learning in Judges, they failed. So when God ultimately does send his son, Jesus, he sends Jesus to save the true Israel by being the true Israel, by being holy and obedient as Israel was supposed to be. In other words, Jesus embodied the people as they were meant to be. Samson, on the other hand, embodied the people as they were. And this is why, as will become clear throughout these chapters on Samson, our salvation requires a much greater Savior than Samson. So just as God empowered Samson with great physical strength, he has empowered him with great literary strength. Samson is doing a lot of work, pointing you to John the Baptist and Jesus and to your own sin. And like the story of John the Baptist and Jesus, Samson's story begins with the promise and announcement that a son and a Savior will be born. So as I walk through this text with you, I'm going to show you three foreshadows of the gospel, of salvation. Three ways this story is teaching you how salvation works. And the first foreshadow that we see in this story is that salvation is the result of God's willingness to save an unwilling people. Samson is the 12th and climactic judge. At the beginning of the series, I said there's 12 judges meant to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. There were six minor judges. There are six major judges. And Samson is the major of the major judges. His story alone takes up around one-fifth of the entire book. And as we'll see in Judges' closing chapters, in the author's mind, one of the greatest problems during this period of Israel's history is that Israel did not have a king. And so everyone just did what was right in their own eyes. Deuteronomy tells us that God was supposed to be their king, but they forsook him. And so one of the points in Judges is, Israel, we need a king. Samson is placed last, therefore, because in many ways he is viewed as the one who prepared the way for that king. And this is one reason I think he points us to John the Baptist. So here in chapter 13, we again hear that common refrain. Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Two observations. First, 40 is a significant number often associated with God's judgment. So you remember that 
When the flood came in the days of Noah, it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. You remember that when the Israelites refused to obey God and enter into Canaan, God judged them by making them wander in the wilderness for 40 years. So Israel, I think, is now experiencing the height of judgment during the days of the judges. And second, you observe that God gives Israel into the hands of the Philistines. Now, the Philistines were not native to the land of Canaan. They had sailed to Canaan a, a little bit before the Israelites arrived from the north. But in the early days of Israel's eventual monarchy, the Philistines were Israel's chief enemy. And so you notice in verse 5 that the angel promises that this child will begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. The author is clearly writing from a perspective that knows what Israel's problem is during the days of the early monarchy. I'll make this clearer when we get to the end of the book, but one of the ways to understand Judges is that it is a very pro-David book. It is making an argument for his kingship, and it is a very anti-Saul book. So you see, Judah is often portrayed in a very positive light. That's David's tribe. Benjamin, Saul's tribe, is painted in a very negative light. And so we know from knowing and reading the story of David, that David is the eventual king who's going to deal with the Philistines. Samson will begin to save from the hand of the Philistines. David's the one who will eventually defeat the Philistines. Samson is not the ultimate savior of Israel, but he will work for and prepare the way for the king who will save Israel. But you should notice something significant missing between verses 1 and 2. As I said, the story begins with the very familiar ring that Israel sins and God gives them into the hands of their enemy. Verse 2 then moves straight to explaining how God will raise up the next deliverer. Now what? do you usually expect to find between Israel sinning, being oppressed, and God raising up a deliverer? Well, what we've always heard in one form or another is that the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Now, I've argued that was rarely, if ever, a cry to be saved from the sinfulness of sin, but it was at least a cry to be saved from the misery of sin. But not here. The people aren't even asking to be saved anymore. Later, in chapter 15, when Samson actually accomplishes one of his victories against the Philistines, instead of rejoicing, 3,000 men of Judah come to Samson and they start complaining that he has fought and been victorious over the Israelites or over the Philistines. They say, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? What are you doing, Samson? 
freeing us from our oppressors. How dare you? And so in this, we see the true extent of slavery to sin and death. You are oppressed and you don't care. You want to remain a slave. You have no desire for salvation. And in this way, Samson's story points us to the gospel. For many think that the gospel is the story that we sinned, God judged us, then we came to our senses and asked for God to save us, and so God responded to us by sending a savior. It's not the gospel. The gospel is that we sinned and God judged us, but the next step in the story is not us moving to God in a desire to be saved. It is God moving to us in his desire to save us. And so the gospel is not man initiates, God responds. The story is that God initiates and finishes salvation. Salvation is not an unwilling God reluctantly saving a willing people. It is a willing God lovingly saving a very unwilling people. See, Jesus didn't come into the world because the world wanted him. Jesus didn't come because we were asking for him. Jesus came because his father sent him and he desired to come. You remember John's prologue. He, that is Jesus, came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Does Jesus come saving his people? The Israelites keep saying, what are you doing? We don't want you here. So we did not ask for and want Jesus any more than Israel asked for and wanted Samson. In the gospel, at all times, God is never reacting. He is always initiating. And that is exactly why salvation is possible. It is not your willingness that saves you. It is God's willingness that saves you. Therefore, God did not send you a savior because you repented of your sin. He sent you a savior to lead you into repentance for your sin. Again, God doesn't save because we repent. We repent because God saves. So when you think again of your own salvation, you should immediately and exclusively well up with a thank you. Thank you, God, that you saved me when I didn't even want to be saved. It should make you thankful for your salvation. It should also make you hopeful for the salvation of others. Maybe you've known or currently know people that have zero interest in the gospel. They do not want to hear about sin and salvation. They couldn't care less about it. Does that discourage you? Well, it shouldn't. Because apart from God's grace, that's all of us. All of us were unwilling to be saved and disinterested 
in salvation until God worked in and upon us. So do not lose hope for those who appear disinterested. Simply pray for God to do in them what he miraculously did in you. And then tell them about the one that they don't actually want to hear about. Evangelism reflects the reality of the gospel. Jesus doesn't say, wait around for disciples to come to you. He says, you go and you make disciples of these people who don't want to be disciples. Salvation is the result of a willing God saving an unwilling people. Number two, we see a, a second foreshadow of the gospel in that salvation is God reversing the curse. Now, instead of the formulaic, the Lord raised up a deliverer, the author spends an entire chapter telling you how the Lord raised up a deliverer. And it begins with God speaking to yet another barren woman, a woman who was physically incapable of conceiving and giving birth to children. Now, there's a lot of debate on whether the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is the Lord himself, whether it's some kind of pre-incarnate manifestation of God the Son, or whether it's just an angel who is so given God's authority that to come before the angel is, for all intents and purposes, to come before the Lord, because he speaks for the Lord and he is to manifest God's presence. Ultimately, it, it doesn't ever tell us. You, you see instances of where it seems to be a messenger for the Lord, and then there seems to be instances where it's God himself. But either way, those who came before the angel of the Lord were coming before the Lord. But why are there so many instances of God coming to tell barren women that they are going to give birth? It's all over the place. Abraham's wife, Sarah, was barren. Isaac's wife, Rebecca, was barren. One of Jacob's wives, Rachel, was barren. Samuel's mother, Hannah, was barren. John the Baptist's mother, Elizabeth, was barren. Why so many barren women? Well, one reason is that this again reveals that salvation is God's power. It's not our work, it's His. He brings life out of a kind of nothingness. He creates out of nothing, just like He created the world. He makes a way where there is no way. What sin is destroying, God is restoring. But I also believe it specifically reveals that in salvation, God is reversing the curse of sin. For what was the curse of sin? Ultimately, it was death. God told Adam, you disobey, you die, and God always keeps his promises. But in Genesis 3, God adds to the curse in the judgments pronounced upon the serpent, the woman, and the man. And yet we know that within these pronouncements of judgment, God planted the promise of salvation. For when he curses the serpent, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, 
and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so you see there an emphasis on the woman and on bearing children. God promised to provide a son who would be the savior of the world. And then, as God continues to pronounce judgments, he speaks to the woman before he speaks to the man. And as he judges the woman, he strikes her in two of her essential roles, as a mother and as a wife. And he promises her that there will now be pain in childbearing, in bringing forth children. And all of you who have had children, you know, that is real. But even here, as he is promising that there will be pain in childbearing, here again is the hope of salvation. There will still be childbearing, which is exactly why the promise given in Genesis 3.15 can come to pass. So as Adam and Eve die, they do not die in despair. Why? Because they still have children who are living after them. And in their children, the promise of resurrection life remains. So yes, they die, but they die knowing the promise is still alive in their children. And so they die in the hope that there will be a way for them to have resurrection life. The fruit of progeny whispered of the fulfillment of the promise. I mentioned when preaching on Jephthah, that for the Israelites, the end of your line, meaning you had no more descendants, was worse than death. It was a, a kind of eternal death because your name was now cut off forever, which is why Jephthah is so distressed that his daughter would never have children. She was his only child. And I believe this understanding again comes from Genesis 3 because in their children the Israelites saw the hope of their salvation. Yes they would die but as long as their children lived after them the hope of their salvation lived on because there was still the possibility that a seed of the woman who would be born who would crush the serpent. So barrenness was viewed as the ultimate curse of God, as if the promise was over. In bringing life out of barrenness, therefore, God was poignantly proving that nothing was going to stop his promise. And that he would reverse the curse. Even as sin and judgment abounded, God's grace abounded all the more. And we see this yet again as the angel of the Lord comes to Manoah's wife. So like with Abraham and Sarah before, Zechariah and Elizabeth who would come after, an angel comes to announce a miraculous birth. But in Genesis 18, when the Lord comes to tell Abraham and Sarah that they will conceive, and in Luke 1, when the angel comes to tell Zechariah and Elizabeth, that a child would be born, the angel came to the husband in both of those instances. In this case, the angel comes to Manoah's wife, 
And she is never named in this story. Clearly, she's not unnamed because the author thinks very little of her. It is clear the author thinks very highly of this woman. Actually, I think much higher than he thinks of Manoah. Manoah is kind of portrayed as a bumbling idiot, but the wife is, is reasonable and she's understanding what's happening. The angel of the Lord keeps coming to her. Even when Manoah says, would you come to us? The angel just comes back to her and she has to go get her husband. So the Lord clearly thinks highly of this woman. I can't say for sure then why she remains unnamed. But here's my suggestion, which I do admit is somewhat speculative. I believe it again is, is pointing us back to the direct reversal of the curse in Genesis. Because in Genesis 2 and for most of Genesis 3... Eve is not yet named Eve. She's just referred to as the woman. She's also highlighted as the, the wife at the end of chapter 2. And that's how Manoah's wife is described. The, the angel calls her woman, and she is referred to us as Manoah's wife. Furthermore, when God judges the woman in Genesis 3, his judgment, as I said, specifically strikes the woman as a wife and as a mother. I think it's also important to remember that when the serpent came to lead humanity into sin, he spoke to the woman first, who then spoke to her husband and led her husband to disobey God's word. She was supposed to be a helper for her husband, to help him know and obey the word of the Lord. But instead, she led her husband in disobedience to God's word. So when God speaks his judgment upon humanity, he speaks to the woman of what will befall her before he pronounces judgment on the man. And so with this background in mind, we see elements of the Lord reversing this curse in Judges 13. As he first spoke judgment to the woman in Genesis 3, emphasizing pain in childbirth, here he comes to speak first to the woman of the promise of salvation through childbirth. And even though the second part of God's judgment was the disruption of the wife's relationship with her husband, here we see that Manoah's wife always goes to her husband. As immediately as she hears from the Lord, she goes to her husband so he knows what they are supposed to do. She is functioning as she was designed to function, to help her husband know and obey the Lord. Truly, Manoah's wife is one of those daughters of Sarah who submitted to their husbands and hoped in the Lord, as Peter describes in 1 Peter 3. Now, women, let me pause here to just simply note how central women are to the gospel. I always think, well, the Bible's all about all these men and all these things you do. There is no gospel without women. They are central to the story. But the gospel depends on women being women and men being 
men. It has struck me that as feminism has grown in increasingly radical tones, in, in my mind, it actually spews hatred for femininity more than it does degrade masculinity. For its central message has increasingly become that women, your greatest enemy is your femaleness. And if you want to truly live and be fulfilled in this life, then you have to throw off being a woman as if female is a prison from which you must be freed. But the promise of salvation depends on women being women and embracing the good distinctions between male and female. Men and women are equally made in God's women, in God's image. Men do not have greater inherent worth and value than women. Men and women are equal heirs of salvation and children of God. But God did not make male and female as identical twins. And we need to take our lessons from God's word and not on what our culture thinks. Now, I'm not saying that a woman's worth and usefulness is only found in being a wife and a mother. Not every woman is called to be a wife and a mother, and they are equally valuable and useful. But I think the danger today, more often than not, is that we look down upon being a wife and mother and think, yeah, well, yeah, any woman can do that. Yet women will play a crucial role in Samson's life. Really, his, his story is about a lot of interactions with women. His mother is wonderful in leading Samson in the way that he should go. You get to the end, Delilah is not very helpful in leading Samson in the way that he should go. Manoah's faithfulness is initiated by his wife's faithfulness. She even has to theologically correct Manoah when he's only getting it partly right. For it takes Manoah quite some time, but when he finally realizes this isn't a man, I've just come before God, he freaks out because he knows you do not see God and live. And yet, his wife then calmly, reasonably, biblically, probably put her hand gently on her husband's shoulder and said, honey, if God wanted us to kill us, wanted to kill us, I, I don't think that he would have come to talk about a savior and he wouldn't have accepted our sacrifice. This is the usual pattern in the Quinn household. An event happens, I immediately conclude, we're all going to die. And then my wife calmly says, Neil, let's just take a breath, see if there's any other logical conclusions be besides immediate death. Proverbs is not exaggerating when it says an excellent wife is the crown of her husband. An excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. And for all of you who have found such a wife, you are saying yes and amen. Notice also that Samson's mother is important for Samson. 
His holiness depends on her holiness. For what she eats and drinks, he's going to eat and drink in the womb. And spiritually speaking, this is still true. Every child desperately needs a faithful mother. Her spiritual life is vital for the child's spiritual life. So mothers keep eating and drinking the gospel that your children might partake of the same. For Proverbs repeatedly exhorts children to hold fast to their mother's teaching as much as to their father's teaching. In Proverbs 31, it even begins saying the words of King Lemuel, an oracle that his mother taught him. In God's interaction with Samson's mother, though, we again see, as I've been arguing, glimpses of the curse being reversed. Life is being created from a dead womb. As the serpent came to her husband to lead her and her husband away from God, God comes to the woman to lead her and her husband back to God. As judgment upon the man and woman was first pronounced on the woman, so salvation is first promised to the woman. How much more clear will this be when an angel comes to a young woman named Mary to tell her that she is going to conceive and bear a son? And this is going to be a far more miraculous birth than any of these barren births. For even as the Lord is, is doing a mighty work by allowing barren women to conceive, it is still ultimately happening through natural means of a husband and wife come together. God just makes work what wasn't working before. Not so with Mary. With Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon her and she will conceive. So salvation is God reversing the curse. The third and final foreshadow of our salvation is that in this story, we see salvation is the announcement that, is, that a Savior has been born and that he has died. The promise of salvation is the promise of a son who will save us from our sin. So the Lord comes to Manoah's wife, and he first acknowledges her barrenness. And you may think, well, why did he have to start out by saying, hey, you're barren and can't have children? But yeah, I, I know. Thanks for rubbing it in. Yet I think he it starts that way so that she knows what he's about to tell her is not born from ignorance. Because if he doesn't know what the state of affairs is. So in the same way as God promises our salvation, we know it's not because he's ignorant of our helpless state in sin. It's just he knows his power to overcome it. But for this son to be Israel's savior, this son would need to be holy. He would need to be set apart and consecrated to God. The rules for Samson's mother were given because Samson was to be a Nazarite from conception. And the Nazarite vow, as it's explained in Numbers chapter 6, included that you never ate or drank anything that came from grapes. You never got a haircut and you never went near a dead body. Contrary to how it may appear, if you look at our son Corin and his shaggy head, we are not actually raising him as a Nazarite. We're just lazy. 
But the prohibition not to eat anything unclean, which you also see here, was, was not exclusive for Nazarites. This was true for all Israelites. But we know at this time, no one in Israel is obeying God's law. And so even this needs to be reiterated. Yet there are key differences between the normal Nazarite vow and what we find here for Samson. Because the Nazarite vow was temporary. It was to be taken for a definite period of time. Yet we see here that, that Samson is to be a Nazarite from the womb to the day of his death. Couldn't only just be born holy. He had to die holy. The point is that Israel needs a savior who is perfectly holy in life and in death. Because Israel had been set apart as holy, as consecrated to the Lord, but they didn't stay holy. As we'll eventually see, Samson suffers from the same problem. But salvation requires the birth of a holy son who will live and die in obedience to God. So the Nazarite vow was temporary. Samson's was for life. The Nazarite vow was also to be voluntary. Samson doesn't get to choose. God chooses Samson to be the holy son and savior. Now this holy son that we need was not ultimately Samson. Or as will be abundantly clear, he doesn't do everything he's supposed to do. The true holy son is Jesus Christ. For you remember when the angel does come to Mary, he says the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And this is why the angel can also say to Joseph, Mary's soon-to-be husband, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. But how will he save them from their sins? By remaining holy from the womb to the day of his death. That's part one. Paul tells us Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But that's only part of the equation. Salvation requires a, a perfectly holy life, but it also requires a sacrificial death. And this is clear in the Lord's response to Manoah. Poor Manoah. I really do think he is an earnest man who just asks a lot of questions because he doesn't really know what to do. We can all sympathize with that, but he just isn't getting the answers that he wants. He, he believes what his wife tells him. He should be commended for that. So then he prays to the Lord, would, would you send the guy back so he can tell us exactly what we're supposed to do? How do we raise this child? What's this child's purpose? Parents, we've all prayed that. The angel does return, but he won't give him any new information. He simply says, you do what I already told you to do. Then Manoah wants the angel to stay in and eat with him. And the angel says, no, instead offer a burnt offering. Why does he say no? 
Well, it may simply be a way of revealing to Manoah, you do not understand who I am. But it may also be a message that God and Israel cannot eat in fellowship yet. Not while Israel remains in sin. There first needs to be a burnt offering and sacrifice that restores and reconciles them before they can sit down and eat together. This sacrifice, this burnt offering is again found only in Jesus. Which is why, yes, salvation is the announcement that a Savior has been born. The angels declare to the shepherds, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. But the announcement is also that a Savior has died as a sacrifice for our sin. So John the Baptist announced, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And in this way, Jesus did not merely begin to save you. He saved you. He is the beginner and finisher of salvation. And truly, this is a salvation too wonderful for any of us to comprehend. It's fitting that when Manoah asks for the, for the angel of the Lord's name, he replies, why are you asking for my name? It is too wonderful for you. It's the same word that's used in Psalm 139 as David reflects upon the Lord and how the Lord knows him. And he just says, this, this knowledge is too wonderful for me. It means it's, it's beyond my comprehension. And so Manoah offers a sacrifice to the one who works wonders beyond our comprehension. And truly the Lord and his ways are beyond us. But that doesn't mean the gospel is unbelievable. It may be beyond comprehension. It is not beyond belief. So rejoice that your Savior has been born and he has died for your sin. He began salvation. He finishes salvation. And praise the Lord that he willingly sent a Savior even when we were unwilling to be saved. Let's pray. Father, sometimes the only proper response to your word and the declaration of the gospel is to just rejoice. We don't pull out our, our list of practical applications. We just wonder in the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I pray that you would give each and every one of us grace now to just rejoice in what you have done. Not to try to comprehend every detail, but to just be overwhelmed with thankfulness that you saved an unwilling people. Thank you that you are willing to save even when we are not willing to be saved. And we pray that as we go forth and tell others about Jesus who may be disinterested, that you would continue to willingly save and unwilling people. We ask this in Jesus' name. 
Amen.